that you are the word of God. We pray that you'd be present to us today. Open our ears and our hearts to believe and to understand the things you would have us to believe. If any of my words, Lord, are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain in us and may it bear much fruit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you. I will say that in the next couple of weeks, uh, for pretty much all of August, uh, we're going to be taking a break from our sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, But for today, we will stay in Acts another Sunday, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Father Bob preached last Sunday about Paul's time in the city of Athens out of Acts chapter 17, where Paul preached to culture at the Areopagus, also called Mars Hill. Uh, Today, we we look at Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1, going all the way to verse 17, where we find that Paul has left Athens behind, and he's made his way to another city in Greece, uh, a city about 60 miles to the west. Go ahead and throw the map up there. This is the the city of Corinth. I know that's terribly small, uh, especially for those of you at the back, but you can see Corinth in the bottom uh, left of the screen there with the yellow star. Uh, That purple line there is Paul's uh, approximate journey, this on the second missionary journey. Now, judging by the fact that uh, we have two letters to epistles in the New Testament that are named for the Corinthian church, uh, you could probably guess that uh, this city is important to the life of the early church. Uh, One of the important things about Corinth is that although it was a city in Greece, it had been destroyed by the Romans in the second century BC. So not AD, but BC. And just about 50 years before Jesus was born, the Romans rebuilt that city, and they built it specifically as a Roman city, a Roman colony. And because of that, Corinth was extremely Roman. It was a bastion of, uh, of Roman uh, culture and of politics. It was an extremely important economic city, largely because of its uh, coastal uh, geography. It was also an extremely di- diverse place. It was full of uh, imperial citizens, retired Roman soldiers, and there were lots of soldiers in the Roman army. Uh, it, was, uh, it had native Greeks. Uh, who might have been around in that land before the Romans ever got there, as well as immigrants and expatriates from all over the world who would have come to Corinth for a number of reasons. Now, all of this together made Corinth the epitome of paganism. It was a religious cesspool of idolatry, and it was known in the region for its debauchery. In fact, there was a Greek word, Corinthiasomai, which meant to act the Corinthian, particularly when it comes to your sex life. That was a thing. And this actually checks out in terms of the New Testament, because when we look at the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, particularly 1 Corinthians, um, it's easy to see how the first Christians uh, from Corinth were having a really hard time leaving their idolatry and their immorality behind them. And so Paul has some pretty harsh words for them. What we can also see from these two epistles in the New Testament is that the gospel was spreading rapidly in Corinth. On some level, maybe faster than other cities that that Paul had been to, the, the gospel was taking root in the worst of the worst. Isn't that interesting? And that, I think, is in and of itself a worthy thing for us to note since we are often guilty of writing off places like Corinth. 
as if God can't do anything with those people. There might be some cities that come to your mind in our own nation that maybe you think of as too far gone. Jesus doesn't think of those cities that way, and neither does Paul. And so this morning, let's see how it is that Paul came to Corinth, and let's see what we find him doing there. In order that this passage might be fresh in our minds, it's a long passage, there's a lot going on, as we'll see this morning. I want to read that passage again for us, uh, those 17 verses. I encourage you, grab a Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 18, and follow along as we go today. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had demanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city... Who are my people? And Paul stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of any of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And so they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. You are probably familiar with with the kind of movie that has uh, multiple storylines. You know, there are all these different stories taking place within this larger story. These are are films like Pulp Fiction, uh, or or maybe on the lighter side, like Love Actually, or or Paris, I Love You. Uh, Or maybe you've actually seen some of these rare films called anthology films, where there's just in this one movie a bunch of different short stories that seemingly have nothing to do with one another except one, uh, one common theme. Uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs comes to my mind. Now, lest you think uh, these are my pastoral movie recommendations, uh, these are just examples. 
of anthology films and films with multiple storylines within them. I'm not sure I would recommend any of these movies to you, actually. Uh, But basically, what these films do is, is to give you snippets or vignettes of plot content rather than giving you this unified uh, plot that runs from start to finish without interruption. Essentially, that's what I want to do today uh, in this sermon. This passage has a number of unique and fascinating aspects to it, so I'd like to present to you today just three. I had to choose my top three here. There's a lot going on. Uh, Three snippets of theological themes that have real relevance. They may not seem like it at first, but they have real relevance to your life today. And so I'm going to spend just a few minutes on each of these, uh, but I do have some recommendations, and I'll have those recommendations at the end of each uh, snippet that I'll give to you if you'd like to to go a little bit further with them. So for the first snippet, let's call it co-laborers. Go ahead and place it up there. And this is a a fantastic uh, piece of art that you'll you'll soon understand uh, what it's depicting there. When Paul arrives in Corinth, although it's his first visit there, It turns out he's not the first Christian in the city. What we learn in verse 2 is that a Jewish couple called Aquila and Priscilla had recently relocated to Corinth from Rome. Evidently, and we see this in the text, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all ethnic and religious Jews from the city of Rome. Now, it's unclear why. Claudius expelled them from Rome, except there is a a Roman historian at this time called Suetonius who said that in some fashion, Jews in Rome were disturbing the peace, some Jews. Now, what this expulsion of Jews meant was that all of those Jews, regardless of whether or not they were responsible for the the disturbance or not, it meant they had to, to, to leave Rome and immigrate to some other city. And we find Aquila and Priscilla choosing Corinth, perhaps because of its Roman prominence, but probably even more so because of its um, economic uh, and strategic value. Now, while I wish I had more backstory here than I do, there are a couple of things we can infer about what's going on here. Uh, Verse 2 says that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he went to see Aquila and Priscilla. And the reason Paul went to see Aquila and Priscilla and not other people was no doubt because they were Jews, but also because they were followers of Jesus as well. In fact, the disturbances in Rome that Suetonius, the historian, records could have very well been an internal conflict within the Jewish community about whether or not this guy named Jesus was the Messiah or not. But in any case, what is fairly clear is that the gospel had somehow already made it to Rome, too, And that there were converts, Jewish converts in that city who had now come to Corinth and their names were Aquila and Priscilla. When Paul found them, uh, it turns out he had more in common with them than than just that they were Christians. Verse 3 says that they actually shared the same trade, that of tent making. Now, essentially what this means is, is that they were leather workers, they were leather workers, and they just happened to use those skills to craft and repair tents. Tents which would have been used for shelter and for shade. So these three, they they shared a connection in their Christian faith, and they shared a connection in their blue-collar skill. But uh, in a few minutes, I'll I'll say some more about tent making, but for now, I want to just point out there was another thing they had in common, and that was how gifted these three were in teaching the Scriptures. Uniquely so. You see, Paul went to the city of Corinth because he felt 
compelled by God to preach there. And that was why he went to, to all of the cities that he went to. It was a missionary journey. As we'll see, uh, Paul had a very remarkable impact on the city of Corinth through preaching and teaching. Uh, but the truth is, and we see this in every city, no matter where Paul went, he always, always, always relied upon the support and shared purpose of those around him. And in Corinth, who he relied upon was Aquila and Priscilla. Now, have you seen, uh, surely you have, those cringeworthy ads around Phoenix about the husband and wife law team? <laughs> You've seen that? Uh, well, um, if you set aside the, 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 the slimy lawyer vibe, um, I like to think this is a bit like Aquila and Priscilla. They are like this early church power couple. And uh, they even have the rhyming names, you know, which would be perfect for a jingle. And I thought about writing one. Uh, I chose not to. Uh, part of what makes Aquila and Priscilla so interesting is that they are unusually equal. Unusually equal in their status. In fact, four out of the six times they are mentioned in the New Testament, it's actually Priscilla who's mentioned first. That doesn't happen to ladies very often. So from now on, I'm going to do the same, Priscilla and Aquila. But back to the point. Paul relied heavily upon this husband and wife tent-making team. And what happens is, not only do they, they welcome Paul into their home and show him hospitality, give him a place to stay, and give him food to eat, they also welcome him into their business. See, Paul wasn't going around to different cities and setting up businesses, but Aquila and Priscilla had one. And so no doubt, Paul worked with them in their workshop. They made tents together, and they probably you know, preached the gospel to those who were passing by in the marketplace. But in addition to that, what we also find, and this is more important, is that Priscilla and Aquila become absolutely indispensable partners in the growth of the church. Namely, they are planting churches, evangelizing the lost, and discipling those who believe. They were the definition of co-laborers. Fellow workers, as Paul often says, and, and says explicitly of them, as we'll see. While this passage in particular doesn't mention it, we know that from other passages in the New Testament that Priscilla and Aquila both had significant gifts in leadership and teaching. It's quite possible that, that, that the church in Corinth that Paul was there fanning the flame of actually met in their home for worship and for community. And even if we can't be sure of that, we can be sure that Priscilla and Aquila eventually became the hosts for church plants in two other cities. Uh, from Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, which he's writing to this church in Corinth um, after he left Corinth. He's not writing them letters while he's still with them. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila actually follow Paul uh, on his next stop to the city of Ephesus, and they help him start a house church there. And this is what Paul writes in, in that chapter of 1 Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians, says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. From Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, also at the end of that book, we learn that Priscilla and Aquila have once again returned to Rome after their pit stop in Ephesus, and they're helping to lead a church there. Paul, Paul writes to them saying in, in Romans 16, verses 3 to 5, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, 
my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well, greet also the church in their house. These references to to, to hosting the church in Rome and before that in Ephesus and probably before that here in Corinth, it's more than just showing hospitality. It is that. But it's also about leading in worship and teaching. And this husband and and wife uh, tent-making team did just that. In fact, their knowledge and their their love of God's word was probably uh, radically increased by the 18 months that Paul was living with them. I don't doubt that in the evenings, uh, after the work had finished, they were talking about the word of God. And Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, were uh, being discipled by Paul in that word by which they would then disciple others. Here's the bottom line for this vignette. Paul could not have done what he did without the partnership and support of co-laborers. Period. Period. In Corinth, he could have never had the impact that he did if it weren't for this power couple. And isn't that always true? It's not just true of Paul in the various places he went. If you think about any of the great leaders throughout church history or any of the leaders that you can see around you today in the church, they do not do what they do without co-laborers. Ever. So, if you are a leader, you need to know that you're not doing what you're doing without co-laborers. And if you have a leader, you need to recognize that he or she cannot do what he or she is called to do without your co-laboring partnership. Amen? If you'd like to go further, uh, my recommendation here is actually a kid's book, but it's good for for all of you. Um, it's It's a wonderful book called An Extraordinary Teacher, An Extraordinary Teacher by author Rachel Spear Weavers. It's about Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. I encourage you to to do a little deeper dive this week. The second snippet that I'd like to share with you this morning uh, we'll call Tent Making and Vocation. Tent Making and Vocation. It's clear that in the 18 months that that Paul was in Corinth, um, Paul was working a day job. He was working a day job alongside Priscilla and Aquila. And although I bet that that Paul was talking about Jesus inside the workshop, what's quite likely is that more of his time was spent working with leather than it was doing church work. I don't think there's a lot of doubt about that. And what this brings up in my mind is the topic of vocation. Vocation. Back in May, uh, through a sermon, I talked about vocation as essentially the work which we do. The work which we do. Uh, more specifically, the work which God has called us to do as humans more broadly, but, but more specifically as individuals. And, and this work, work is in that wonderfully good biblical sense of the word, the, the wide-ranging activity of cultivation that God has, has given to humanity. For Paul, we know that he is called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That is a, a vocation and a calling, That work of evangelism and discipleship and apostleship that has taken him around the Mediterranean, that is one of his vocations. But at least at this time, and probably at times in other cities, he also had another vocation, 
And that was tent making. It was work God had called him to do. Paul has more than one vocation from God, as is true for all of us. And his latter work of tent making is not less holy than his former work of apostleship. It's not. Instead, the reason that's not the case is because both are made holy by the way in which he does the work and the reason which he does the work and the fact that God has called him to it. In, uh, in contemporary world missions, if, you, if you've read it all in, in missiology or anything like that, or maybe you've heard some sermons throughout the years, often you'll hear about tent making. Tent making. And what is meant by that as a reference to what's happening here with Paul is that a missionary, you know, a, a modern missionary might work a normal job in order to provide for, for his or her financial needs or maybe to, uh, to gain entry into a, a specific country, maybe one that's closed to the gospel. And in that job, that tent-making vocation, as it were, um, is done in order that uh, that missionary can then evangelize and disciple people in that city. This is actually, this is a good thing. It's, it's strategic. It's practical. However, sometimes tent-making can sometimes just be seen as a mundane means to a holy end. Meaning it's just the work that you do so that you can do the real work. It's, it's just the thing that pays the bill. It's just the platform that you had to have in order to do your ministry. Just get it done so you can get to the things that God really cares about. I think Paul and Priscilla and Aquila give their trade much more dignity than that. Much more. I think they would have actually considered it sacred work, a work which honored God and created good in their lives and actually produced a good for others. Shelter, right? In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthians, both in chapter 4 and in chapter 9, Paul talks about this. He talks about working for a living, namely working with his hands. He's blue-collar. And the way he talks about it is with pride. He believes that God calls us to hard work and that leaders in the church weren't called to live luxurious lives at the expense of everyone else's hard work. And in that latter regard, he also worked for a living so that he wouldn't be a burden to the church. Now, that's not true of all the leaders in the early church. And that wasn't a problem, but Paul wanted to make sure that, it, that the early church didn't think that somehow he was setting the stage for leaders to come who would not work hard and would just take advantage of God's people. However, it has been common in, in the last 50 years to conceive of two categories of, of Christian work. Those who work normal jobs and those who work in ministry. Instead, what I think that the New Testament actually teaches is normative for the lives of believers is that we are all to be working for God's glory in whatever vocation that we have. And also, we are all called at the same time to be actively involved in the work of discipleship and evangelism wherever we are. So we work out our vocations to God's glory, whatever they are, and we work in discipleship and evangelism wherever we are. It's a both and. It's not an either or. And so the bottom line here 
is all our vocations matter to God and to his kingdom. All of our God-given vocations matter to God and to his kingdom. I wonder, I wonder what value you've been placing on your vocations. Perhaps not enough. Perhaps not enough. If you'd like to go further on this topic of vocation, I have a book I'd like to recommend to you. It's called Kingdom Calling. Kingdom Calling by, by an author named Amy Sherman. In fact, it's actually out there in the narthex on the bookshelf. Uh, be the first one to grab it and, uh, and take it home. But do uh, give a donation so I can replace it, okay? All right. Here's the last, uh, last snippet that I'd like to share with you this morning. Everyone's favorite word, predestination and evangelism. Go ahead and put up the next slide. Predestination and evangelism. This snippet has to do with, with Paul's really interesting vision from God that he has here in Corinth. In fact, this reason, uh, this vision, is the reason Paul stays in Corinth so long. Now, let's call it uh, predestination and evangelism. And I will say, these are two things that have uh, often been talked about as oil and water. To set the scene, uh, we're told in verse 4 of the passage that that Paul has been reasoning in uh, the synagogues every Sabbath, every Saturday, And he's trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks to believe the gospel. He's actually in between, you know. Uh, Christians in the early church, they just didn't have a place to belong. They were taking it from all sides and they were preaching the gospel to everyone around them. So Paul is doing this in, in Corinth. When he wasn't tent making, he was actively out there in the centers of spiritual life and cultural life in the city which he was in. And wherever he was, he was appealing to all the different kinds of people who were there to believe the gospel. As I've referenced before in, in 1 Corinthians, in fact, he says, becoming all things to all people. That's what Paul is doing here in Corinth. Well, despite the fact that, that many of the Jews in Corinth were not happy with Paul, specifically, verse 6 says, they opposed him and reviled him. That's pretty strong. Um, they even ended up taking him to the Roman tribunal, hoping that he would be severely punished, maybe even killed. Uh, yet, even still, verses 7 to 8 tell us that two men in particular, Titius Justice and Crispus, believed the gospel and were baptized. And then, verse 8 says that many of the Corinthians who were hearing the message believed and were baptized. So, despite the fact that Paul is having at least some measure of success in Corinth, at least in these early days, yet, evidently, there were plenty of Jews, plenty of Greeks, And plenty of Romans who all rejected Paul, who all rejected Paul's message, and they weren't happy that Paul was there. Now, this wasn't the first time that would have happened. It would have happened in every city that Paul ever stepped foot in. Um, But Paul had reason to, to fear for his safety, wouldn't you? He had actually been attacked violently before. He had been stoned before and still survived. And and so Paul wasn't actually against fleeing a city if it meant he could preserve his life, unless God was calling him to stay in the face of it. So as Paul may have been contemplating in those early days being in Corinth of whether or not he should stay, like, am I going to be killed here? And is that good for the kingdom or not? Um, We see in verses 9 and 10 that Paul gets this vision from the Lord. He gets an answer as to the question he's asking himself. And God tells them this in verses 9 and 10, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you 
and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. For I have many in the city who are my people. Now, the reason this is so unique is that essentially God is telling Paul to remain in Corinth longer than he stayed anywhere else to date. Way longer. And what God tells Paul is that he's going to, uh, is that he's going to protect his ministry there so he can stay there. And the reason he wants him to stay and the reason he's going to protect his ministry there is this. Because there are people in Corinth who belong to God and are going to believe in Christ. Did you catch that? These are people who God says belong to him already, but have not yet believed. Interesting. The theological issue this raises is that of predestination. Predestination. This is a, it's a complex, complex doctrine. One that's been uh, very uh, zealously debated uh, throughout the centuries. Um, now, although predestination can be difficult to understand and perhaps more difficult to apply, yet uh, what I want to do is explain this is really a biblical doctrine, nevertheless. It's not one that you can set aside if you don't like it. Uh, for example, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, opens that letter saying this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as his sons through Christ Jesus. Essentially, what, it, what is meant by predestination by Paul and, 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 and those who are trying to understand what Paul is writing is that God has elected us for salvation even before we've ever believed and been saved. Now, my goal today isn't actually to explain predestination any further. There's not time for that. We'd need like five sermons. Um, rather, I want to comment on how a theology of predestination is applied specifically to evangelism. You see, the truth that God predestines us to believe and be saved in Christ, it can often become the reason why we are complacent and apathetic uh, in the cause of evangelism and world missions. The rationale goes, well, uh, if God has already chosen those who are going to believe, then why would we need to try and evangelize anyone? God is going to save who God will save. We can be comfortable. Here in Acts chapter 18, what God is saying is, is that the fact that he has chosen people in Corinth to believe the gospel is the very reason Paul should stay and continue to preach. Isn't that strange? It's a different way to look at it, I think. I wonder, I mean, are there people around us who belong to God already and they're just waiting for us to open our mouths? It'd be interesting. I think it might be biblical. Here's the bottom line. A theology of predestination is one of the reasons for evangelism, not a loophole to get out of it. 
If you'd like to go further on this topic, I think there's one book, the classic book that I would recommend to you. It's, it's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, uh, the late Anglican theologian. Uh, wonderful book, really simple uh, to understand. Uh, I commend that to you. All of these things, uh, whether it's co-laboring, uh, whether it's tent making and vocation, whether it's predestination and evangelism, all of these things are quite relevant for your life of discipleship. You're called to co-laboring. You're called to vocations. And yes, you're called to evangelize. So I want to encourage you, uh, although I haven't fleshed out application in this sermon, to in your devotional life, go further and reflect on these themes this week as you pray and as you read. Finally, the last thing I'll say this morning is that uh, for the next four Sundays, uh, the Sundays in August, our sermon time is going to focus on other things, other themes in the life of our church. Uh, we will return to Acts, the Acts series, um, in four weeks, picking up right here in Acts chapter 18, uh, and we'll watch what Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, go on to do uh, with Paul as their fellow worker. Amen. Priscilla and Aquila uh, go on to do uh, with Paul as their fellow worker. Amen.